This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Pamela Malloy's debut novel, The Deserters, was published in 2018 and explores the tangled relationship between a lonely wife on a New Brunswick farm and an American soldier who goes AWOL while on leave from Iraq. Whereas The Deserters examines the aftermath of war, specifically post-traumatic stress disorder, Pamela's follow-up, As Little as Nothing, explores the effects of war's approach. Set in the south of England in the 12 months leading up to the outbreak of World War II, the novel is a vivid portrait of a community still coming to terms with events of the past, while also preparing for an uncertain future. The audiobook version is narrated by Lillian Rachel. 1st September, 1938. Awakening. Miriam knew she needed to fly when she lost her fifth baby. Those luminous nights, the pearl moon casting shadows across the village as she took flight, her arms spread, her body soaring, undulating through the air currents as she went higher. Higher so that she could no longer see the village. The space in which she existed seemed at once foreign and yet her own. This was her nightly journey, the one that might save her. For seven nights she existed in this liminal space, anchored to her bed, anchored to the idea that there was another Miriam who had overtaken her, one who existed in the bed of clouds that blindfolded the moon. It was on the eighth morning that she heard the airplane she knew to be in trouble. Roused from her morning nap, she was startled by the sound, despite living so close to Hackley Aerodrome and flying school. They'd become accustomed to the planes, but this buttering was new, and it pulled her, still weak from the blood loss, from her bed. She grasped the heavy curtains that kept her room as night and squinted at the intruding light. She opened the window, surprised at the soft, balmy air, and looked skyward for the airplane that now seemed elusive. There it was a choking sound that told her it was still up there somewhere. She reached for a dress from the wardrobe and was soon clothed, the first time in over a week. She thought to take a cardigan, leave a note for Edmund, put an apple and two digestive biscuits in her bag. She barely knew where she was going as she stumbled down the stairs and outside to her bicycle. Her cardigan pulled on the metal sign on their gate, Hawthorne Cottage, as she passed through and she reached back to release it. There had been much discussion on the naming of their house, how important it was to Edmund. Pamela Malloy, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you so much for having me. As we've just heard, the book starts on the 1st of September 1938, which is a very significant date in terms of what will happen because it is exactly a year before the outbreak of World War II, isn't it? 
Yes, this is um, set in a year before the start of World War II. Um, when I was thinking about how how to kind of set the the, the structure of the book, um, I was really interested in trying to kind of capture the kind of tension that happens with this great looming event that is taking place. So I thought about marking the events that take place across the the year before World War II started. And it very much gives a sense of a countdown to impending war. We meet a cast of characters who are preparing for war, but praying for peace. And it gives the book a rather dreamlike quality. And I I was actually rather reminded of... Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf, the the sense of the plane flying in the sky above the characters being both a symbol of freedom and modernity, but also of what could come from the air in terms of aerial bombardment. Yes, I think that that idea of a sort of impending doom was something that I thought a lot about before starting the book, um, because... I guess I was sort of thinking about what I, I thought of it for a long time about what it would be like to live in a time of of something a, in the shadow of a catastrophic event. What happens in that time? You know, are people sort of in constant state of fear? Are they waiting for that you know bomb to fall from the sky, or are they going about their day and doing their laundry and and going to work? And it was sort of hard for me to imagine that holding both in that in their reality which is what of course they would have had to do and so i i was trying to kind of you know have have these characters live their days in in a kind of ordinary way but also with one eye to the kind of sky or 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 to the news reels to see what is exactly was happening and so that that was something that i had thought a lot about and as it happened i i was started to write the book at a time when things seem to be kind of falling apart catastrophically in the world with in politics and and uh you know with the, with the the Trump election and so on was going on and and I, in fact I started writing it um before the pandemic and 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 sort of had a feeling that there was some sort of great catastrophic event happening it wasn't the pandemic that I was predicting but more kind of what was happening on the political front but it was sort of interesting for me to have have lived through the pandemic in a sense of having that sense of what it what it's like to live through um you know the kind of anticipation of a catastrophic event and actually be be part of it yes churchill's storm clouds gathering over europe are, are very much in the background of this book and you capture that with some clippings from contemporary newspapers that not only show the rise of fascism in Europe, but also some of the banality of everyday lives, the the adverts for trinkets that you can buy from the shops. It, it, it's a kind of twin stream approach of terrible events in the future, but fripperies in the present. I thought it was really important to to capture that sense of what it was to live in the day-to-day lives of the characters. And I think 
you know, when I we 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 look back at World War II, there's so much. It's such a big part of our life, even now, um, that it's hard to imagine it not being there, like you know, being erased from our minds. Which is what I had to do when writing this book. I had to kind of think about the fact that there might not have been World War II, and that was quite interesting for me when I was going through the research too, is to see that during that time, well, several times during that year there was some measure of hope that things might actually turn out okay and that the World War II might not have been. And so in order for me to, to kind of erase World War II from my mind, um, I resorted to, um, I subscribed to the Guardian uh, archive and was reading the newspapers of that time. So on the days that I have included in the, in the in the book are actual excerpts from the mag newspapers, so it was interesting for me to see that whilst you know there are great political things happening, there's negotiations happening, people were booking train trips to through Europe, and there was advertisements for you know settees for sale and and you know the new theater and the new book. So having that having the newspapers really kind of kept me grounded in the day to day and allowed me not so much to look forward but to stay in the in the present to see where we, where people were what they were doing what they were thinking what they were seeing one of the other side effects of this time of uncertainty that they're all living through is that some of your characters find it almost impossible to move forward miriam who is getting over her fifth miscarriage she's been in bed for days and and really can't move her her husband Edmund is trying to take a an active part in the ARP, the Air Raid Precaution Service, but failing. All all he really wants to do is tend his vegetables. But because of the plane crash that Miriam is just about to witness at the end of that clip, that is a, a catalyst to actually spring her out of her torpor and help her, well, literally rise above her physical situation. Flight is an area where women have been some of the pioneers, and it's something she dreams of doing, rising above and gaining a sense of perspective. Yes, I mean, I think this was a real turning point for her. I think she had envisioned a life with children and you know her husband and living in what would we think of as an ordinary life at the time and so at this point where she's had five miscarriages and it seems clear that she's not going to have children the sound of the airplane that draws her from her bed is kind of a a turning point for her it's a point where she can it's it's like the she draws a line between her old life and her new i don't think she's consciously doing that but it is something that is sort of symbolic in the sense of pulling her from her bed and pulling her from, you know, flight being a, a, a metaphoric part of the story where it, it takes her, it frees her from what might have been a kind of life of of sorrow, of, you know, melancholy because she, she couldn't live the life of having children. So I think... Um, that is is a is a kind of key point for her in in starting the new life that that takes her to where she learns to fly where she takes becomes involved more and more involved in flight and she is not the only one who flight 
offers a way out of their imperfect life. Four people are brought together by this crash. The pilot, Peter, who is a Canadian, and Frank, who is a young man with a club foot and homosexual leanings that he hasn't acted upon. He too wishes for something more than his uncomfortable and grounded life. He's actually building an aeroplane when this plane crash happens and is able to use Peter's expertise to help finish that plane and achieve his dreams. Yes, I think that uh, the idea of flight became a sort of freedom for him as well. Um, I think he has lived in this kind of country home, separated from his family that don't really understand or accept him. And I'm not sure he really understands or accepts himself in, in that in those early days. So flight becomes something that is, is offers him uh, freedom and, and and an exploration into the person he could potentially be. And of course, meeting Peter has opened up something in him that I don't think that he's actually acknowledged or realized in a way that he could act upon. So I think, yeah, it, it, it's a kind of source of freedom for Frank as well. I was interested how when we revisit Frank's younger life, the first time that he had ever felt a sense of kinship and some kind of reconciliation to his disability was with the disabled soldiers returning from the First World War, where actually their disabilities could be viewed as something other than an aberration, more something to be proud of because they had been earned in the service of the country, helping to keep others free. Yeah, I think his disability is something that has sort of made him special in a way when he was younger. Um, and so I think because he'd had the special care and, and you know, he looks at, at the men who had been involved in a war and also sees them as some as representing something that he can't have or do be part of because of his disability. So um, the fact that they have had this sort of heroic life and have the kind of scars that are visible to mark them is something that I think he sees as kind of elevating their experience in, in terms of someone who has a disability. It also helps him to realize that he is not alone, that he is not as isolated as when he was younger and his parents had wanted to hide away his disability, had worried about how other people would react to it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he saw himself in another person as, you know, who had the disability, absolutely, for sure. Now, as we said, the new technology of aeroplanes offers not just the ability for a woman, but for a man with a disability to rise above the places they occupied in 1930s England. And both Frank and Miriam do find a place to fly in the air transport auxiliary. In doing so, they're following the lead of other volunteers like Amy Johnson, the pioneering British aviator 
The role of the ATA in supporting the RAF during the Second World War is one that for many years was rather overlooked. What drew you to examine its history a little bit more? Well, that was really the starting point of the of the book. And I came across the Air Transport Auxiliary many, many years ago. And I I can't remember where this I where I heard of them. I think I may have seen something on television or, or and I subsequently read a book on them. But the the idea of this organization where people were serving the military um, but doing things that were nearly as dangerous as the military. So they weren't getting the kind of full-on glory of being a kind of pilot in the RAF. Mm. But they were doing some pretty um, amazing things, basically just flying these planes across uh, the country, delivering tr- planes so that the RAF pilots would be in full supply of planes. So they were they were flying these planes from factories, from, from one uh, airport to another where the planes were needed. But they were flying without navigational equipment, without radios, and really trying to kind of uh, fly by looking at the landscape below them, they would fly upwards of two or three planes a day and different kinds of, of planes each time so that, you know, they might be going from Brighton to Norwich in a Spitfire and then from Norwich to Birmingham in a, uh, a gypsy moth. And, and I actually visited a, a lovely museum, the Air Transport Activity Museum. And one of the things that really stayed with me is that the pilots would have a flip book that they would take. So they would get their chit, which says where they're going to fly, and they would be given the flip book. And they would have this booklet on their lap, which would give them the instructions about how to fly that particular plane which was kind of extraordinary for me to think about, you know, <laughs> really kind of uh, learning on the fly, so to speak, about how to fly a particular plane. So it, it, it really took a kind of remarkable bravery, I think, for me that really stood out. And the fact that the Air Transport Auxiliary had uh, women fly, that was a good portion of it, and also disabled men and, and also men who were too old or unable to fly with the RAF. So it did sort of seem that they really kind of recruited what what they almost saw as a kind of B team of, of, of flyers, but were really remarkable people. Yes, it was a non-combatant role, but it also had an extremely high attrition rate. Certainly Amy Johnson, who I mentioned earlier, died while serving in the ATA as did many, many hundreds of others. Yeah, it was it was incredibly dangerous. I mean, like I said, just the fact that they had to fly these different planes, they had to to get to know them fairly quickly. But there was weather conditions, and a lot of the landing strips where they would have to land were camouflaged. So they might be flying, looking for a place to land, and then suddenly realize that, oh, this what if this thing that looks like a field with fences and so on is actually the the landing strip, so they would have to make last minute decisions and so on. So they you know, they really did have a quite a dangerous job to do. And yeah, it was non-combative, but they also had to be aware that uh, there might be other military planes that could shoot them down. You know, they were in the air in the same airspace, so there was that to think about as well. And also our own air defences, who sometimes got a bit trigger-happy with any plane flying over in them in the sky. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I think that they they were just you know, objects that would not necessarily be readily uh, identifiable. Now, I mentioned that there were four protagonists in this book, and one of the others who in many ways is just as fascinating as Miriam and Frank is Frank's aunt Audrey, who is a spinster, who lives in a gypsy caravan and who fights for women's rights to choose as far as motherhood is concerned. Could you introduce us a bit more to Audrey, please? Oh, yes, with pleasure. Um, Audrey was, um, as you say, she was a, a woman who was in her 50s. Um, she comes from an upper-class society, but she has is, is kind of set herself apart from her her, her family uh, because they are living a kind of traditional upper-class life. And she is someone who has driven an ambulance in the World War I um, has lived a life more adventurous than, say, her family, and finds herself at in her 50s uh, living in a caravan by a river on the property of her family as a way of kind of being outside of society, but also living her own life and serving a meaningful purpose as a reproductive rights activist. So she goes around the country giving lectures on reproductive rights and then re re returns to her caravan out by the river where she swims daily. She takes a, a daily swim in the river. So she is someone who is, um, I feel, is, is a kind of representation of the kind of early feminism um, at the time. And also someone who was part of the kind of quite progressive uh, reproductive rights movement that was taking place at the time. And she forms what might seem like a rather unlikely alliance with Miriam, who, as we say, has had her fifth miscarriage. And yet Miriam is drawn into this fight for women's rights and for women's right to choose. Yes, I think, um, you know, what, what I was trying to portray here is two women who have... Are each of them are sort of stepping outside of what would, we would think of, it would be a normal life for them. So although Miriam is is someone who has suffered from a, a miscarriage, so she's not necessarily been active up to this point with reproductive rights, she is someone who is sort of drawn to the kind of um, cause that Audrey has been part of. Um, I think the other thing about the two of them that was interesting for me is that they are different in age and different stage of life. And so I was interested in the idea of having um, women who were slightly of different sort of societal rank rankings and also of a different age so that um, that friendship was, was something that I was interested in developing. You don't see that kind of friendship in books as often as I, as I would like to. So I wanted to, to kind of portray how that uh, friendship would come to be. And it also is a demonstration of the power of historical fiction to provide light on debates that are still raging to this day, what with Roe versus Wade being in the States, is in the United States. It does us a lot of good to have some perspective on how those rights were fought for in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. 
Yeah, well, this is also very interesting for me because um, this aspect of the story started in 2017 when I went to uh, took the train to Toronto with my daughter, who was 16 at the time, and we took part in the Women's March in Toronto. With there was 60 or 70 thousand women there, which was an extraordinary event for us. And one of the things that I noticed at on that day was placards with. You know, why are we still fighting this fight for reproductive rights? You know, many, many signs of that nature. And I, it just made me think, well, how long have we been fighting it? Because my idea of what this, the history of this is more recent. I think of, you know, the 60s and 70s as being the kind of um, heyday of, of uh, you know, the, the pill and so on being come, being introduced. So I went home and I, I, I started to look at the history of reproductive rights and and it because I had also been thinking about the fl women who were flying at the time I was taken back to the 1930s and in fact that period was quite a um an interesting time a pro progressive time in terms of reproductive rights I I also discovered a woman by the name of Stella Brown who was Canadian born but moved to England when she was 12 and she became a uh, uh, influential reproductive rights activist. She was an interesting character, um, kind of eccentric and, and outspoken. And one of the things that she she talked about was the fact that women should be allowed to have a, an active sexual life without having to worry about the burdens of motherhood. And so this the argument around the idea of a woman having an active sexual life rather than the kind of argument around poverty or, or other arguments that have been made up to that point was was incredibly progressive and um, really sort of set her apart from other activists. So I kind of wanted to introduce that aspect of the book as thinking how progressive things were at that time. And as you say, with recent developments, it really feels like we've kind of, you know, regressed in terms of, uh, of women's rights. You actually write Stella Brown into the pages of the book and her sense of urgency and that of Audrey for women's rights are set against the countdown to war that we discussed earlier until towards the end of the book when war is imminent, the sense of duty amongst the population takes over and suddenly the progress that has been made on women's reproductive rights has to be shelved so that the country can prepare itself to take up arms against Germany. And again, I was, I was struck by the parallels with modern history. We, we seemed to be making a lot of progress in terms of stopping using single-use plastics before the outbreak of the pandemic. And then single-use plastics became something that we had to don every single time we went outdoors or took a test for COVID. And we haven't really got back to that, that awareness that we need to stop polluting the earth in the ways that we have hitherto done. Yeah, that's that's a very good parallel. I think, um, you know, there have these causes that are, are long fought for. You know, we like to think that things of um, following a kind of progressive track, but 
Um, when you see examples in history like that, where you say, in this case, it's uh, in the environment, um, where 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 things just something else becomes kind of a prominent uh, you know, catalyst, and everything else just becomes dismantled. You know, the, the reproductive rights at the time, it just became ever the, the the all of the women were sort of taken out of their their um, normal roles and started to to serve the war effort uh, which was necessary and so it, it I think it took a long time for that to shift back to um, the attention to, towards reproductive rights again yes it's a salutary reminder that human beings are apt to make the same mistakes again and again and after the break we will come on to talk about a more recent war that features in your debut novel The Deserters Share your views on the books you love with Red Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111 Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week I'm in conversation with Pamela Malloy. Pamela, your first novel, The Deserters, which was shortlisted for the Relit Award, deals with the aftermath of war, whereas as little as nothing obviously deals with the run-up to it. And specifically, one of the protagonists is dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yes, so this is a, a book that um, I had been thinking about for some time. Uh, I think it really went back to when I was a teenager and living in, in a small town in, uh, in Moncton, in New Brunswick, on the east coast of Canada. And it was, I ran into um, a man who, it turns out, was a deserter from the the U.S. He had left the U.S. some time ago to escape from Vietnam War, and that idea of of someone leaving a country to uh, escape war really stayed with me. Especially since this is a a very kind of quiet um, province bordering on Maine, which is also not sparsely populated. And so that idea of of escaping war really kind of stayed with me. And also, I started to think about what it would be like to be a soldier, a reluctant soldier, someone who was forced to go to war. And he was served in war and, you know, had the the after effects were that he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and... It took some time for him, like it often does, for him to actually become aware that that was the case for him. And the book really explores trust and abandonment and emotional disconnection. There has been a breach of trust as far as Dean, the deserter, is concerned. His war has not gone well. And he and the other protagonist in the book, Eugenie, who owns the farm on whose land he, Dean, is hiding out, also has issues with trust and abandonment. 
Yes, I mean, they came together. Dean goes, uh, crosses the border and he camps out on her property and comes to her as someone who might serve as a, a handyman to help, out, help her out as she's getting the farm set up. Her husband is in Spain. He's a master carpenter and is doing some works over there and and is is only there kind of occasionally. So um, Dean is, is 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 really sort of lost in his own world and also, you know, kind of has had to abandon his old life. And he becomes involved with Eugenie on a kind of uh, casual way in a casual relationship that sort of develops and their idea of of trusting each other trusting themselves uh becomes part of the of the story i think um for for dean he is unable to kind of really understand what's actually happening to him as i said he does have post traumatic stress disorder but it's undiagnosed it's not acknowledged and it becomes more and more apparent to I think both him and to Eugenie that that there is something that is not quite right with him, and having to kind of overcome or trying to get to the to the source of it or really understand what's actually happening is be, is what is what uh, drives the story forward. Yeah, they um, they are able to create a safe space to explore that. But all the time you feel that the world is encroaching from around them. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's it's such a kind of uh, rare thing to be so, so isolated. So you've got this experience of war that is that I, I write about is his flashbacks to war. That is a completely different environment. You know, he's in Iraq, he's in 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 these places where battles happen and you know, it's the kind of highly traumatic experience for him. And then suddenly he's in this isolated place where even even in the thick of woods where there's really no dangers except for perhaps a, an animal, um, those those memories of war are still present. And, and even though he's in an isolated place far from any real danger, the danger in his own mind is is, is clearly still there. The action takes place in three different continents. And I was struck that despite what Dean is going through, actually there is a a restorative power in the nature that surrounds him in New Brunswick that is absent certainly uh, in Iraq and, and also in the parts that, uh, of the book that happen in Spain. Yeah, I think that uh, that uh, that restorative um, aspect is something that um, I was also trying to explore. I think, I mean, with with Eugenie's husband, who is a master carpenter, he has his own trauma that he's dealing with, and and for him, he's able to to kind of focus on the fact that he's got this very specific kind of art form, marquetry, um, furniture making, and the idea that art can kind of save one in those traumatic experiences was something that I was thinking about. And for, for Dean um, and Eugenie, who also, they're, they're, not, they're not necessarily kind of exploring and having an art form that saved them, but they are, they are experiences, the, the experiencing the um, development of this farm. Like he becomes engaged in, in, 
making it work and, and developing it. And she doesn't necessarily have all the skills, but she has the, the determination to do it. So they're all trying to, each of them are trying to kind of, um, you know, move forward in their world, despite the kind of abandonment and trauma, but also seeking it in each other, but also sort of diverting their attention to the tasks or the, the art form at hand. Yeah, I mean, Eugenie's husband is very much focusing on, on the small picture, isn't he? It, 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 what he is doing is very intricate, whereas uh, Eugenie and Dean are, are, are dealing far more with with something that is larger and and actually at times it threatens to overwhelm certainly Jeannie um, and, until she gets Dean on board. But it, 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 it's a big project, the farm that they're trying to manage. Uh, it is a big project and it's hard to imagine that Eugenie could have gone very far with it without <laughs> Dean's presence, to be honest. You know, I think that it, it was something that, well, it was something that she was going to do with, with her husband. That was the idea that they would move mm. back because this is an inherited land and it would... It would be um, a, a place for them to to work and settle, and it happened that uh, Michael had a project that kept him in Spain and kept him in Spain, and you know he just you know delay after delay after delay, and so as it turned out, he she was there on her own, and so the idea of their of them developing this farm just started to kind of ebb away, and that's when Jean, when Dean came in, and so it was a very fortunate for the situation for Eugenie and it, it really allowed her to kind of to see this this project that she had a vision for come through for her. Which of course gives us a different angle to look at the whole question about taming and controlling a territory to consider in parallel with that of Dean's story as a member of an invading army. Yeah, that's right. Yes. I, it's, it's interesting, too, to talk about tame and control. And I think about that in terms of of how um, Eugenie sees Dean, I think, not, not so much in terms of controlling him, but I think that I think that she sees herself offering a kind of refuge that um, could possibly save him um, in some way. And, you know, this is something that maybe I think at at the beginning becomes a kind of a point in their relationship that brings them connection. But but later, I think it becomes something that may be part of the relationship that is is flawed, I think, because, you know, she she can't really save, you can't save another person to, to the extent of, of, of having some sort of control over them. Now, as you've already said, uh, New Brunswick is the place where you were brought up. So the landscape of the deserters is something that is very familiar with you. I, I believe you now live in Kitchener-Waterloo and you are the creative director of the Wild Writers Literary Festival, which indicates that the country has never left you. It is it's very much part of the way that you frame your literary life? I think, yeah, I mean, the the when I returned, I lived in England for eight years and returned to Canada uh, in 2004. And the first thing that I did when I came here was to find, try to find a kind of literary grounding, trying to find my community. Um, because I think that was the way for me to connect with my 
my country, um, if I can say that, um, after being away for, I was away for 11 years. And yes, I, I'm the editor of the New Quarterly Literary Journal here, and which is a national publication, and I'm the creative director of the Wild Writers Literary Festival, where we bring writers from across Canada for a period of three, three days in November to have workshops and panels and discussions. Um, and yes, it, it, this is a way for me to kind of feel very grounded in my, in my landscape. And I believe you've got a new book out later in the year, which was somewhat inspired by your experiences in the pandemic. Yes, I've been interested in trains for quite some time. I'm a big fan of, of train travel, and I've been thinking about writing about trains for a number of years and really trying to figure out what to do with it, right? what to do with trains. And And it was the beginning of the pandemic when it became really clear to me that, um, rather shockingly, that we would not be traveling anywhere, that I started to think about writing the train book, about writing a book about traveling on trains in a time when we were not able to travel. So I began writing kind of one essay, one, one train trip at a time, and really using past experiences of, of train trips as a way of exploring the social history of trains. So there's some research that I was uh, got lost in, I have to say. It's uh, fascinating for me to, to do research on when I'm writing and writing about other experiences of uh, train travel and some of the other history, social history stories was really fascinating. But it has also allowed me to be to think about travel itself and what it means to travel, what it means to to go places. And so it became a kind of combination of um, meditation on travel, generally a travel memoir, exploring my own trips, um, and a social history of trains. And it's got a great title, which should have us all rushing out to go and buy a copy. Yes, it's called Off the Tracks, a meditation on train travel in the time of no travel. Absolutely irresistible. <laughs> is there any hope that it's going to be recorded as an audiobook as as little as nothing has been so wonderfully done? Um, I do hope so. My publisher is the same a publisher that publishes as little as nothing, and they are um, quite active in terms of of uh, audiobooks. Um, I, I can't say for sure. I haven't I haven't signed a contract for an audiobook, but I'm hopeful. Well, fingers crossed, because they and you certainly absolutely nailed it as far as choosing Lillian Rachel as the narrator for As Little As Nothing. She has a fantastic ability to create three-dimensional characters with her voice. She wasn't a narrator I'd ever come across beforehand. And yet from the opening, she was very engaging. Did you have anything to do with her selection as a narrator? No, I, I didn't. Um, the, the publishing house just contacted me and said that they had um, had signed the contract with this organization that uh, was going to do the audiobooks and the fact of with signing with this company is that, that I didn't have any kind of say or control over it. But um, I I follow her on Twitter and, and I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. I haven't actually listened to the audio book um, yet. And I, I I think I need to do that now that you've mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, 
you know, kind of talked about it being so kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm happy to hear that that she does a great job of it because one of the things that I talked to my editor about was because it's a, a kind of an ensemble cast. There are four characters. I mean, there are two main characters, the two women, and it's a very you know character based novel. So how do you get those voices? Uh, how do you translate those different voices? So I'm really pleased that uh, she seems to have done a, a terrific job in doing so. Well, I think you're in for a treat. I'm guessing that, unlike me, you don't use the opportunity of a long train journey to listen to a nice long audio book. You're actually staring out of the window and scribbling down notes. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I talk about in my book is the fact that for me, the train is really a, a kind of retreat. It's a kind of creative retreat. So I am absolutely staring out the window. I'm also writing. I write uh, on, uh, I bring my notebook and I write on a train. So it feels like a, 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 a really creative and productive space for me. And when I'm on the train, I feel like I, I get it's really down to some deeper level of, of thinking and, and creative uh, writing. And, and so, yeah, unfortunately, I don't listen to audiobooks on the train. I do listen <laughs> to audiobooks on car rides, though, with my, with my daughter and my, and my husband. Well, I wonder if any of the titles that you're going to choose as the books of your life are ones that you have listened to in audio rather than picked up in paperback form. Um, I guess we'll find out after the break. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sale. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Pamela Malloy, with whom it's now time to share the books of her life. So, Pamela, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Yes, I would say that uh, reading The Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery was a book that really um, is the book that made me think about writing and reading in a way that was inspiring. I mean, you have this wonderful active orphan that made as it made being an outsider appealing. She was feisty, but she was also someone who was lovable and loving. And the writing, you know, sets a, paints a picture of Prince Edward Island and the farm where she eventually goes to live as being a kind of beautiful landscape that it is. My my father actually comes from New Brun from Prince Edward Island, so I would spend my summers there. So I had that connection uh, to Anne. I think, I think I probably kind of imagined myself to be Anne in some ways or another. Uh, you know, obviously I wasn't an orphan, but you know, she made being an orphan kind of exciting. So yeah, I think that was the book that I can imagine that I, I can say really made me think about what it was like to tell stories and to to imagine yourself being in someone else's life to really inhabit the life of somebody else. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well, I have to say that pretty much anything by Helen Humphreys is something that I will pick up at any time. She's one of my favourite uh, authors. And 
you know, she writes so beautifully. So her writing style is sort of simple and lyrical, and you sort of get drawn into the stories in a way that feel really sort of an easy way in. But then she has this great emotional insight that leaves you sort of thinking about the book for, for many, many days after. Um, since since uh, we're talking about World War II and as little as nothing, I'm going to choose her book Coventry, which is set in World War II, and it, it really kind of centers around the bombing of Coventry during World War II. And it has this beautiful opening where Harriet, who is a fire watcher, goes to the Coventry Cathedral and is one of the the one of four fire watchers who are really looking out for the uh, German airplanes to see if they're going to be striking that night, and of course they do. So it's 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 a, it's a story of how they navigate the the actual bombings and the aftermath of this particular battle, and it's told with kind of spare language that is lyrical, beautifully written, with a great emotional uh, punch. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, I would say that Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These was such a beautiful book. Um, again, you know, similar to the writing of, of Helen Humphreys, she writes with a, a kind of spare but really beautifully lyrically lyrical writing. Um, that is, it really kind of draws you in quite quickly and, and you inhabit the characters really fully. This is a story that is set in 1985 in Ireland. Um, it centers on a coal merchant who is uh, making his rounds uh, before Christmas, which is his busy time. And he goes to the local convent and discovers a girl in a coal shed. It's, it's really a kind of story about the Magdalene Laundries. But it's told as a kind of um, story that it it it's sort of indirect telling about that that history. It's a story that's sort of told between the lines, where where there is much unspoken, um, but it has a great emotional impact. So yeah, it's a book I would reread for sure. I'm so going to have to get her onto the show. Yeah, she has, she also has another book that has come out called Foster which is being made into a movie called The Quiet Girl. And it's also a really beautiful book. They're very short, but really beautiful books. But yes, I would recommend having her on the show. Pamela Malloy, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading with the listeners today and also for sharing some greater insights into your own novels. And I hope you'll come back onto the show in years to come with books to come. Oh, it's been my great pleasure being here talking to you today. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Pamela Malloy, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or check out our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books 
or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.